So I watched the movie Beautiful Boy, and I knew, I knew, I knew it was going to be tough to watch. And I'm going to tell you what the movie is really about, because I've had the privilege of, like, for 12 years, talking with people about what's going on in their lives in a deep and meaningful way, and people are so desperate and hungry for those kinds of conversations. And the one thing that goes on in this movie, which is about a young man's drug addiction, is all of these, well, first of all, treacly sentimentality, horrifying cultural infections, and endlessly interrupted conversations. So I'm not going to give you all the backstory, although it's interesting. You can look that up for yourself. Basically, it's a, a mom and a dad divorced, and the son bounced back and forth between them. And then the dad gets remarried, has two more kids, and uh, the um, the son from his early to mid-teens takes uh, unbelievable amounts of drugs, becomes a meth addict, a heroin addict, and so on. Anyway, so the father in the movie, he's in a meeting at one point of the movie at the magazine Rolling Stone. Now, Rolling Stone is a degenerate family culture reason-destroying pit of anti-rationality vipers. So the idea that after pushing uh, drugs and sex and uh, perversions of all kind, that your son might have an issue or two is not beyond the realm of imagination. But there is what is called in masculinist circles a shit test. So the son is trying to convince the father to smoke weed with him. I don't know how old he is. He looks to be in his, uh, I don't know, early 14, 15 years old. And gets the father to admit that he, the father, took drugs. Oh, I took my share and took a lot of drugs. Now, in the real world, I did a little bit of reading. In the real world, the father took his son with him to all of these exotic, fabulous locations. The son, when he was a little boy, was playing tag with some other kid at Timothy Leary's house, the famous LSD adult professor. And he thought it was an open doorway, but he ran into a glass door and smashed up his face. And Timothy Leary was like, whoa, far out, man. Nose ain't broken. Creepy, uh, creepy stuff. And you, you don't, you, you don't let your kids around Timothy Leary. What are you, crazy? This is the thing. Mm, there's something in the movie, which is, is, is good, where the son ends up in a hospital for, for an overdose. And the, someone says to him, some doctor or nurse says to the kid, what's wrong with you? And he says, I'm an alcoholic and a drug addict. And he says, no, that's how you treat what's wrong with you. What's actually wrong with you? And that's the big question. How much pain do you have to be in your life to become a drug addict? How much misery do you have to carry around inside of you to become a drug addict? Well, I've done a bunch of talks on this before. Uh, I'll, I'll link to one below. But basically, you have to go through horrifying, horrifying stuff as a child to end up with what the son, Nick, describes as a giant black hole within himself. And you have to have experienced such a brutal lack of compassion. As in, 
Timothy Leary saying to you, not, oh my gosh, are you okay? I'm so sorry. Uh, is there any, what can I do? How's the pain? But like, hey, fire out, man. Cool. Your nose ain't even broken. You know, that's, that's some, that's really cold shit, frankly. And that's just sort of one example. He also, so you have to have gone through such a lack of compassion to end up with so little compassion for others in your life that you're willing to put them through. Uh, drug addiction is, uh, to me at least, an act of uh, desperation, uh, an act of rage against the self, and in particularly passive-aggressive rage against the others. And the son said this in an interview that he wanted to destroy his, uh, his father's life, uh, partly. And, you know, how much anger, how much unexpressed anger do you have to have? Now, the other thing, too, is that you have to be very miserable. Right? You get a happiness level of 100. And so there are some people, like the dad, who took drugs. And, uh, uh, you know, your happiness level went from maybe 100 to 150. And then when you stopped taking the drugs, it went down to, I don't know, 80 or 90, then slowly cooked back to around 100. But if your happiness level is at like, I don't know, minus 50, and then you take a drug and you get to plus 100, then you feel normal for the first time in your life. You feel what it's like to not be in psychological and emotional agony for the first time in your life. And then what happens is you crash down to minus 200, which is even worse than when you started. And you've had this taste of normalcy. Can you imagine being, I'm, I'm sure some of you have this experience. You've been in chronic pain your whole life. You finally get some relief or some release and you feel normal. And, and then what happens is the chronic pain now becomes unbearable because before maybe you thought it was just like the human condition or something. Then you feel normal for the first time in your life. You don't take drugs at that level to feel high. You take them to feel not in agony, I think. But then you crash really, really badly. And then that's why you end up in this addictive cycle. And then, of course, uh, as the son points out, you do things as a drug addict that make you so ashamed. I mean, where do you get, where does he get the money for the drugs? I mean, I assume the usual horrible stuff. Uh, he steals, obviously, from his own father. He steals $8 from his own brother. I would imagine um, drug dealing, prostitution, uh, the whole the whole thing. And so it becomes a real spiral that it is almost impossible to get out of. I guess a few people do. But, I mean, this kid had the fortune, I suppose, of having uh, parents who had uh, massive resources and so could make that work for him. So the interrupted conversations are crazy. And I assume it's because there's dark secrets in the family that nobody wants to talk about. So the boy, here's the thing, you, you know, there are a lot, uh, there is a certain number of just predatory, horrible human beings out there. And I've talked to people who have been at the hands of those people and they've been tortured as children and raped as children and assaulted as children and molested as children. So you have to you have to keep a pretty tight control over your children uh, in terms of their environment and who has access to your children because there's a lot of creeps out there. And um, yeah, even put your kids in government schools, right? I mean, one out of 10 kids in government schools in the U.S. ends up being sexually transgressed against in some manner. One out of 10. Would you, would you want... You want to roll those dice with your kids? Well, no, of course not, right? But the son outside the movie talks about how his father had just like a series of girlfriends coming through. And who knows? I mean, could have been pedophile girlfriends, could have been creepy girlfriends, could have been uh, really, really nasty people. And, you know, it doesn't take long. You know, it doesn't take long. If, if you, you go out to get a pack of cigarettes by the time you come back 
uh, if someone creepy has exposure to your children, uh, they could have done something very nasty to them. So it's sort of like Girl Interrupted, where there's no secret that is ever spoken of that is the source of the psychological suffering. But in this situation, you have a kid who doesn't come from a two-parent household. His parents divorced very young. I mean, maybe originally, but his parents divorced very young. And he's shipped from one parent to the other, which means the parents have boyfriends and girlfriends and so on. And if you have a an adult living with you, right? So let's say you're the child of a single mom and you have a man who's not related to you living in the household, you're more than 30 times as likely to be abused. You're more than 30 times more likely to be abused if you have a non-related adult living in the household with you. So there's this guilt, I would assume, and this fear of leaving your child with others who turn out to be horrible and, and failing your fundamental duty to build a protective wall around your children when they're young. So there's all of these interrupted conversations. And that to me is a symptom of this kind of stuff. And it's a very, very important symptom. If you've ever had it, I remember once when I was a teenager, I used to go to this, uh, my, uh, a friend of mine, his family uh, co-owned a little farm in Northern Ontario. Um, this is one fantastic memories of my childhood that we used to go up there and, uh, oh, it was fantastic. In the winters, there were snowmobiles. I remember playing tag. You, you would, um, you would throw snow, uh, uh, snowballs at whoever had the snowmobile. And if you hit them, then you got to ride the snowmobile and all that. And I remember, um, going so hard on the snowmobile, I broke a ski. And I also remember like everybody was relatively okay with that. Of course, in my family, it was not like that way at all, but, uh, and, and in the summers we would have, uh, dirt bikes, like not pedal dirt bikes, but little motorized dirt bikes. And so I would ride those in the woods and we used to have races, like you'd time people to have a fantastic place. And I worked pretty hard up there too. I chopped wood and, and cleared brush. And I also remember one weekend where we had to move the outhouse. Ooh, that was a whole medieval series of vivid sensations. Let me tell you that. But I remember going out on the dirt bike into the woods and I got as far as I could. And, um, I just, I couldn't start the dirt bike. And it just, it wouldn't, wouldn't catch. It wouldn't start. And I ended up having to push it back forever. And there were so many bugs. I didn't have any bug spray on and, Oh, it was, that was hard work. Let me tell you that. But, um, it turns out the battery had fallen off, uh, somewhere. I think that's what had happened, but I remember that feeling and we've all had that, you know, try and start a lawnmower it just doesn't go. And the same thing with the conversations in these movies. And that's why I knew it was going to be so frustrating to watch this movie because people, I don't know. It's like, like an asteroid that's heading towards a planet doesn't hit it. Right. It doesn't hit the planet. It doesn't go past the planet, you know, with its trajectory altered a little bit. It ends up captured in orbit. And that's like these conversations. These people can't escape each other, but they can't contact each other either. And that's maddening. I, I don't know how people live like that. I don't know how people live. How can you be around people and waste all of your time together? How? Only connect, as the enforcer said. You must connect with people. You must unpack your heart. You must tell them what's in your heart and mind. We are a brief flash. You know, we are in the tra in the trajectory of matter. You know, when a when an airplane 
goes through the sound barrier. There's this boom. There's this, that's connection, right? We were always in trajectory. Why not just connect with people with honesty? So I knew that this was going to be a movie with massive amounts of justification, sentimentality, and avoidance, and no consciousness of it. And it was. So I'll give you an example. So after the son successfully gets his father to smoke a joint, which is a test, right? The, the, the son is saying, do I have permission to use drugs? And the father stupidly agrees because I don't know. Does he want to be cool? Does he want to be hip? Does he, I don't know. So the son says that he deserves to party. He deserves to do drugs. And at this point, they think it's just marijuana. And the son says it takes the edge off stupid all day reality. And the father, and Steve Carell's really good in this. Uh, I mean, he's got that Kermit giant beak shrillness, but he's good as an actor. But the son says, smoking marijuana takes the edge off stupid all day reality. And the dad says, like gives this pause and this look, what is stupid about reality? And the son says, like daily stupid things that don't matter. And the dad says, okay, you cannot say dumb shit like that or you're going to stop believing it. What a missed opportunity. To me, this is where the drug use begins to escalate. Because the son is saying, it, it's like that line um, that Brick has in Cat on a Hot Tin Roof. Mendacity, mendacity, mendacity. That people are boring, life is stupid, nihilism, right? Stupid all-day reality, daily stupid things that don't matter. So the child is being infected by a kind of alienated nihilism. Now, where could that have come from? So there's a scene earlier. Well, I mean, the movie's scattered, but there's a theme, scene that chronologically takes place earlier where there's some nasty, dark, thresh, metal, nihilistic, banshee howling song in the car, and the son is screaming away, in abandon when he's, I don't know, six or seven or eight, maybe, in the car to this dark, nasty song. And you can see these musicians uh, in his posters in his room, right? Who does he have up as musicians, right? Well, he has David Bowie. Well, David Bowie, of course, serious addiction issues and, and a very nihilistic personality. He's got a picture of Snoop Dogg, I think it is, again, nihilistic and uh, and uh, and drug pro drug problems. The soundtrack, of course, of the movie is like one drug-addled performer after another, right? So there's uh, uh, David Bowie. Sorry, there was uh, John Lennon, of course, with Beautiful Boy, and John Lennon had his issues uh, with with drugs. And um, Neil Young, um, I, I believe that Neil Young may have had a joint or two in his life. And so, and then the boy reads a poem by Charles Bukowski. By Charles Bukowski. So I'll get to that in a sec, but there's another conversation. So, so he's got all of these nihilistic, drug-addled, horrible cultural influences. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm, I'm not a Puritan. I, I love me some, some Bowie. I mean, Young Americans, a great song. And, uh, but, but nonetheless, you, you do have to be careful with your kids in terms of what you expose them to. So if you're a, a cool Rolling Stones guy and there's a bunch of nihilistic, horrible, drug-addled people around and your kid ends up as a drug addict, 
I mean, it's not massively shocking, is it? So dad says to the son, son's already doing hard drugs. Dad doesn't know, I think, at this point. It's hard to tell because the movie kind of flips all over. Dad says to his son, you know what we should do? We should go, sh you know what we should do? We should go surfing. And his son's like, yeah. Dad says, that sound good? Son says, I'm kind of into other things now, you know? Dad says, reading misanthropes and seriously depressed writers? Ah, you're mocking your son. You're mocking your son's interests. You're mocking your son's interests. Again, interrupted conversations, right? So the son says, I'm kind of into other things now, you know? Now, the dad assumes that it's reading these writers. But the son, the son could equally be referring to his hard drug use, which the father doesn't know about at this point. No curiosity. Oh, like what things? Or what do you find interesting about these writers? What do you find fascinating about these writers? What do they speak to you? Do you think it's good for you? It's bad for you? Whatever, right? So father says, reading misanthropes and seriously depressed writers, like mocking his son. Son says, oh, come on. They're, they're kind of great though, right? They're kind of great, right? So he's, I don't know. They don't refer to which writers in particular because the one that's, that comes up is Bukowski, who is, was a completely horrifying human being with an unbelievably brutalized childhood. So the son says about misanthropes, right? Those who hate humanity and seriously depressed writers. So the father knows that the son is consuming this kind of literature. And again, you can read this kind of stuff as long as you're aware of it. You can read Dostoevsky's notes from the underground as long as you're aware of it, as long as it doesn't infect you because you're conscious of the writer's issues. Uh, even Dostoevsky himself was a terrible addict for gambling. Boy, you ever want to read something horrifyingly instructive, go through his wife's letters about Dostoevsky's constant gambling uh, issues and addictions. Uh, this, this repetition is, is horrifying. So the son is already consuming very dangerous material, which is these writers in a formulative, sorry, in a brain that is still forming, he's been exposed to some, some of the most brutal, horrifying, human-hating nihilists. He's consuming them on a regular basis, and then he ends up as a drug addict, you understand? The nihilism comes first. Well, the trauma comes first, then the nihilism, then the drug addiction to avoid the nihilism, and the nihilism is there to avoid the trauma. And that's the strange thing. So. Charles Bukowski, in terms of who you want your children to be exposed to, not particularly helpful. Uh, he was a horrible nihilist, a uh, human-hating person, and because he wouldn't follow any decent values, but instead spread the horrifying nature of nihilism across the world, he could only get occasional scraps of happiness when the planets of random hormones aligned. And Charles Bukowski's childhood, so... Bukowski said that his own father beat him with a razor strap three times a week from the ages of six to 11 years. Beat him with a razor strap three times a week from the ages of six to 11 years. Now you say, well, maybe that's true, maybe that's not, but certainly got some beatings, I'm sure. And Bukowski says that it helped with his writing as he came to understand undeserved pain. Now, what I would say is it would help with the writing because you got to understand human evil, right? Beating a child at all is, is an evil action. It's a violation of the non-aggression principle against a helpless, independent offspring. But that's Charles Bukowski. So if, you're, if your son's reading Charles Bukowski, that's a big warning sign. It's a big danger sign. 
It's a big danger sign. Now, he goes to college, this young man, and there's a dreamy-eyed, Nordic-cheeked girl when the son, who's a drug addict, is reading Bukowski's poem in class. And the girl makes all of these womb-widening, dewy eyes at him. Oh, he's so deep, he's so sensitive. And then, <clears throat> funny story, it turns out, strangely enough, that the boy reading Charles Bukowski turns out to be dysfunctional in some manner. See, he's advertising his dysfunction. This is like the wounded mating cry of the zombie-hearted. I'm going to read Charles Bukowski out in class, and then any woman who gets attracted to me has no excuses when they find out that I'm a wildly dysfunctional, extremely damaged drug addict who steals drugs from your own mother's medicine cabinet when he's over for a family dinner. People tell you everything that you need to know. We have almost no excuses when we end up in these messy relationships because people tell you everything right up front. The movie really should just be called Terrible Things That Happen When You Don't Listen. So his son is saying these writers who hate life, who hate humanity, and it's mirrored in the everyday boring stuff, right, that he talks about earlier. And the son says, oh, come on, they're, they're kind of great, though, right? The dad says, I get it. It'll pass, though. It always does. Hmm. Right? Smug face, smug face, smug face. In other words, it's just a phase. You know, you being into these drug-addicted, nihilistic, misanthropic writers who are seriously depressed. It's just a little phase. You'll, you'll pass through. It's like puberty. You know, you'll go through it. So the dad says, it'll pass though. It always does. Son says, what does? The dad says, the feeling of being alienated and isolated. <laughs> right? And the dad says, huh, that really helps. Thanks for the advice, dad. Sarcastic, right? So the son is trying to say to the father, it's, it's, it, people put up these trial balloons, right? Are you interested in what I have to say? Do you care about me as a human being? And the father doesn't. The father is just interested in being lofty and superior and, uh, oh, pat, pat, pat. This is just a little face. And you know what the son says? The son says, fuck you. I'll show you this is a phase. You think this is just a phase? You're not interested in who I am. You don't care about my experiences. You don't want to hear about what I went through. Because this is the thing that's interesting in the movie, too. The father at one point says, I made mistakes. I, I wish I hadn't, but I did. But those mistakes are never talked about. What mistakes were made? Right? All, all you see is this wonderful, beautiful, devoted, salt-and-pepper dad with apparently limitless resources and almost no requirement to work. And, you know, like at one point, one of the um, rehab centers, 40,000 U.S. dollars a month. And the dad's like, uh, yeah, they don't have a good rate. He doesn't say we can't afford it. He says, oh, it's good. Don't have a result. What's the father been paid for? Well, the father has been paid to peddle degeneracy, and it, uh, it bit him. So we have these constant conversations, right, where the son is trying to talk about the, 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 the beast, the demon, that's growing in his heart and, and taking over and displacing his heart. Largely as a result of the cultural influences that his father has promulgated and has exposed him to, like this horrible thrash metal punk nihilistic song in the car the kid is screaming along to at the age of seven. 
son is saying, I, 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 have, a, I, have, a, I have a demon. I have a, something's taking over my heart. I am being dehumanized. I am being eaten alive from the inside. I have zombie, chompy teeth grinding through my soul. And the father doesn't care. The father doesn't want to know what his son is going through, right? That's really clear. Now, this is the uh, ditto crap that goes on in the movie, right? Which is the sentimentality, right? So when the son and the dad hug, they, they say everything, everything, right? And you know that's going to be something that is sentimental and it's, it's unpacked, and it is. So the, the, when he's a little boy and he's off to flying off to, to see his mom, the dad says to the son, well, dad asks for a hug. Someone won't give it to him. And eventually the dad says, do you know how much I love you? And the little boy shakes his head. And the dad says, if you could take all the words in the language, it still wouldn't describe how much I love you. And if you could gather all those words together, it still wouldn't describe what I feel for you. What I feel for you is everything. I love you more than everything. And then the little boy says, everything? The dad says, yeah, everything. I love you more than everything. The, all the words, blah, blah, blah. Yet I don't want to hear about your struggles with this nihilistic devil that's taking you down. I won't ask any questions. I won't probe. I won't, like, I'll just mock you and, and roll my eyes and, oh, you've got to stop saying stupid shit like that. You might end up believing it. <laughs> well, guess what? He ended up believing it. But just saying, don't say stupid stuff. Oh, that just struck me. Oh, ooh, ooh, insight, auga, auga. Like daily stupid things that don't matter. Takes the edge off stupid all-day reality. And then the dad says, okay, you cannot say dumb shit like that or you're going to start believing it. Dumb shit, of course. Way of saying stupid. So he's, Nick is saying stupid things don't matter. And the dad says, you're stupid. You cannot say dumb shit like that. Your words are stupid. Stupid all day reality. Stupid things don't matter. Stupid things don't matter. And the dad says, your words are stupid. And you don't matter. And then, I love you more than everything. Ugh. Sentimentality. This is an old insight from Jung. Jung said that um, sentimentality is the superstructure of brutality. It means um, it's the flip side. It's, it's the camouflage. It's the cover. If you have a brutal side to you, then you are going to be sentimental, right? Like Hitler being a vegetarian and loving dogs, right? You're going to be sentimental. So this I love you more than words, more than everything. But they don't he doesn't love him enough to actually ask him questions. And there's this endless, oh, it's so annoying. <laughs> I'm going to sound terrible here, but I always said, I'll be honest. So there is this uh, horrible, empty, dumb positivity in the movie that is, to me, the superstructure of the brutality that interweaves this family. So at one point, they're talking about and it's a really interrupted conversation. I assumed it was improv or maybe it was scripted, but 
about some guy in the 17th century who invented the hula hoop and everybody's laughing and giggling. Fine. And then, of course, there's the usual um, playing with, with the kids. Uh, the boy at one point has, has got his head in the sand with another, with his younger stepbrother, I assume. And he says, uh, you know, they're playing a game of uh, uh, 20 questions or whatever. And then there's, you know, the, the family throws paint, uh, a blob of paint. And that's interesting, too, because the family throws blobs of paint at a canvas to make a picture. Again, that's the modern art, Jackson, horrible stuff that has decayed our sensibility and sensitivity towards beauty by just making random blood spatters, it looks like instead of having actual art, sort of the voice of fire stuff or, or all of that. Anyway, and then the, the kids are running through the sprinkles and, and giggling and, and joyful and all that kind of stuff, and everybody's having a great time. And I, you know, don't get me wrong, that stuff's fun, but that's not the essence of family life. The essence of family life is honest, instructive, revelatory conversation. That's, you know, that, that stuff's dessert, right? And it's great, you know, you have a little dessert once in a while, for sure, enjoy but you got to have your meat and veggies, right? you you got to have your nutrition. And nutrition is conversation. That stuff is fun. But that's part of the sentimentality. And that's part of the, um, the gaslighting of the audience, which is, we were so happy. We were so close. It was so wonderful. Like the father says, I thought we were closer than most fathers and sons. It's like, yeah, but every single time your son is wrestling with a huge issue, you make fun of him. You mock him. You diminish him. You roll your eyes at him. And you say that the cure to the demon that's eating his heart and mind is to go surfing. Go surfing. There's, you know, the, 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 the father eventually does place some limits on his son, right? Uh, towards the end of the movie. There is a scene in the family, it's just struck me now, the scene where the family's going swimming and the mother won't let the little boys go into dangerous surf. And the father says about his own son, yeah, it's fine. Although the son weighs up like a buck thirty or something like that. He lost like twenty pounds. His skinny guy to begin with lost like twenty pounds for the scenes they shot first in the hospital. Brutal uh, to lose that much weight on such a thin frame to begin with. Dangerous, I would imagine. But uh, yeah, so the mom has real limits and real boundaries. And the mom, the stepmom, I guess, stepmom of the the drug addict. Um, there's no limits from the, from the boy. I mean, the, the father's smoking drugs with him. See, the father smokes marijuana with his son. But the mom won't let her children go into what might be quite dangerous surf in the ocean, right? So this is, uh, there are no limits, right? Well, it's Rolling Stone. It's not about limits, right? So there's a very interesting moment as well. And I, I, I see this, I'm sure that the audience does as well, but I see it really, really clearly because I don't have these conversations. So at one point, the father is trying to find the son and he finds instead this, um, vapid young woman who's again brain has sort of been eaten alive by drugs and he says do you want something to eat she said oh most guys just ask me for a blowjob right again just pointing out that this is what this is how you get drugs right and there are gay people who cruise drug addicts and will give them drugs in return for uh, blowjobs well some democrat donor had two black guys die in his house oh, nothing happens because he's on the left but anyway so At one point, the father says to this little, this young woman who's a drug addict, he says, what about your parents? 
And she says, what about them? They don't care. They don't care. That's her honest statement, right? She's saying to this guy, my parents don't care that I'm a drug addict. My parents don't care about me. And then he, this triggers something in him deep down. This is not acted. I just know that this is what's happening, right? So my parents don't care. Well, why is his son a drug addict? Well, I would assume because something really traumatic happened when his son was in the company of these crazy people the dad exposed him to continually. And also his son is a drug addict because his father won't listen to him, doesn't listen to him, doesn't care. Son's wrestling with the demons. The dad says, eh, it's a phase, you'll pan, right? So the father is triggered when the girl says, my parents don't care. And he says, I think they do. Now that's about the father. That's not about the girl. And the girl says, quite rightly, what the fuck do you know? What the fuck do you know? And then she gets up and she leaves. Now, what's interesting about this is that uh, this is nothing deserved. This is just the way that life works, right? And I think this is the case. So the father is projecting and, and is not listening to the girl, right? My parents don't care. She says that very clearly. My parents don't care. And he says, I think they do. And of course, he doesn't know. She says, what the fuck do you know? And he doesn't know. He's not willing to ask questions. All he can do is project. All he can do is be narcissistic, self-absorbed, and, and focus only on his own emotional management rather than, right? Because, yeah, you know, guess what, folks? You, you know this as well as I do. There are parents out there who don't care about their children. There are parents out there who exploit and abuse and molest and rape their children. There are parents out there who introduce their children into hard drugs. There are parents out there who will sell their children, who will sell sexual access to their children to pedophiles in return for money or drugs or attention or whatever, right? I mean, they're, they're absolutely horrible, brutal, abusive, destructive parents out there. And if this woman ends up as a drug addict and he says, oh, I think your parents do care. And what the fuck do you know, right? Like, it's nothing to do with her. Now, what's interesting is that this coldness, again, this lack of listening on the part of the dad, which is mirrored in every time his son brings up stuff, his son is, uh, is talking about hating life and, and hating people and all of that and being nihilistic. And he's like, eh, it's a phase. Yeah, it's just stupid shit. Don't say it. You don't really believe it. It's fake, blah, 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 right? It's a, it's a pose. It's a posture. It's right. It's angst. It's adolescent angst. Oh, terrible. Adolescent angst is a very real thing, people. You've got to listen to your kids. And it may not look pretty when you look into the mirror of their childhood and see your grotesque face as a parent, as they see it. It may not be pretty, but you have to do it if you want to avoid this kind of stuff. So the girl, when, when the father says to the drug addict girl he's buying lunch for, I think your parents do care. She says, oh, what the fuck do you know? She gets up and she walks out. Now, Later, this blows back on him because his son, for reasons I couldn't quite follow in the movie, just ends up being unhappy and going back to find drugs. It's the girl who meets him and ends up being his companion for a while. It's the same girl, right? So the coldness of the father about the girl's lived experience that her parents don't care then bounces back. And I wonder if, deep down, the girl says in her heart and mind, you wouldn't listen to me about the horrors of my childhood. I'm going to create horrors in your life. 
So then she helps his son later fall off the wagon and start taking drugs again. Those moments where somebody's honest with you, please, everybody out there, listen to people. Put aside your own thoughts, your own experiences, your own defensiveness. Just listen to people. So the movie is, it's worth watching and, and it's an important movie. Like so many things, it's just not what's really going on. Like there, there is all of this belief out there. Like they say the drug addiction is the leading cause of death for men under the age of, I think it was uh, 50. And there is this idea while it just strikes randomly and, and, and so on. I don't believe that to be true. I don't believe that to be true. I believe that people have a miserable, horrible existence because we live in such a destructive culture at the moment and in such an anti-white culture as well, such an anti-white culture, uh, anti-male, anti-whites, right? I mean, if a particular group that's hated and has no voice to express discontent at that, at being hated is going to become destructive in some other manner. Uh, and, uh, you know, we have this whole cultural predation that hates white males and it's it's really painful and uh, I and I push back against this a lot by pointing out to people when I talk about the frustrations uh, or racial issues to do with white males I mean people just shout you down they scorn you they mock you that's really really painful and it's not going to end well at all because there comes a time if people start joining together and say we are tired of the abuse we're tired of the denigration we're tired of the destruction and then what happens is, and I would rather this didn't happen, but this is what happens if, if no one listens, is that instead of acting inwards, they start acting outwards. Instead of trying to destroy themselves, well, they take an entirely different approach to society. So please listen to those who are suffering. It will help them. It will surely help you. But like, like listening, learning to listen to people in pain is like quitting drugs. It's really, really painful in the short run, but it will save us all in the long run. Well, thank you so much for enjoying this latest free domain show on philosophy. And I'm going to be frank and ask you for your help, your support, your encouragement, and your resources. Please like, subscribe, and share, and all of that good stuff to get philosophy out into the world and also equally importantly go to freedomain.com forward slash donate to help out the show to give me the resources that I need to bring more and better philosophy to an increasingly desperate world. So thank you so much for your support my friends freedomain.com forward slash donate.